I'm now I'm a food addict, and um, uh, if it's our tradition, and I'm from Virginia to kind of show pictures, um, that's me at 335 pounds, which is 150 pounds heavier than I am today. Um, I'm going show a few pictures, but it's trickier with Zoom to do it that way. Um, so um, um, let me just start by just the basic stats. I've been in OA. It'll be 31 years next month. Um, I'm keeping off. Um, and have been abstinent, um, keeping up 150 pounds, have been abstinent approximately 25 of those 30 years. Um, not continuously, I've had three relapses. I've had as much as 14 and a half years back to back. I currently have five and a half years. So I've had three relapses across those 31 years. Um, just a little background, uh, you know, where I come from. Um, my dad cut out when I was an infant and I was raised um, by my mother and grandmother. Um, Hold on a second. Um, this changes on my screen. Um, and um, my mother struggled with mental health issues. She was probably schizophrenic or um, at least significantly depressed. And um, what that meant is that she couldn't stop. And so um, we, um, we lived on public assistance, welfare in New York City. This is in the 60s and 70s. Um, and so we lived in basically what you call a ghetto or a slum, really rough neighborhood. And the way it most affected me was physical violence. Um, I was beaten up multiple times just for being a, a fat little white kid in a neighborhood where I was, didn't really fit in too well. Um, I once was literally almost beaten to death with a baseball pad. I almost had my jaw broken. I mean, it was violent. Um, somebody didn't have their mute on. And, um, I literally going to school each day would have to like think how do I you know get how do I cross which blocks to not get beat up I mean literally it was sort of like going through a war zone so there was a lot of fear for my physical safety for good reason and then um, things were further magnified by my mother's mental health um, she had multiple suicide attempts starting when I was maybe 10 11 12 she started asking me to commit suicide with her and so I have memories of her literally handing me a bottle of sleeping pills and giving me um, something to drink and telling me how horrible our life was and how we should both just you know jointly commit suicide together and get out of this hell that we're living. And I would just beg and I couldn't imagine now you know saying that to a 10 or 12 year old child that they should die because there's no purpose to life. And I would just beg um, that I wanted her to live and I wanted to live. And so that all said, the place I knew to go so I didn't take the pills was the refrigerator, the ice cream truck, the candy store. I mean, honestly, I think I'm glad that there was all that extra food there because that's sort of what um, kept me alive. Um, when I was 13, my mother um, overdosed on the pills for the third or fourth time. She didn't die, but because of the multiple suicide attempts, she lost legal guardianship. She was no longer my parent. By this time, my grandmother was dying of a stroke. And um, so I went into a foster home. My mother went into a psychiatric hospital where they warehouse people for long periods of time. It was kind of a notorious snake pit called Creedmoor in New York City, kind of a horrible place to be, which I would go there and have just horrible memories of what was going on there. Um, and um, I'm up to um, 200 pounds by age 14 in this foster home where there was some abuse and alcoholism to boot. Um, I went off to college 
And the first thing I discovered at college was unlimited food. And uh, I proceeded to gain 170 pounds in four years of college. I remember going to those cafeterias and uh, you know how you can, um, you know, it's like unlimited food, anything you can put on the uh, tray is yours. And I would just go crazy. I would, um, I, I was a shameless binger. I mean, I would literally, I remember filling up the tray with like three desserts and two entrees and this and that and bringing it back to the group table with the other students. And people would say, oh, did you bring food for us to share? And I was like, no, this is for me. You know what I mean? I would like binge uh, shamelessly with, you know, with abandon. You know, I mean, I just, um, I just ate and ate and ate. And you have to eat pretty heavily to gain 170 pounds in four years, especially when you're a teenager. Um, I got out of college, 335 pounds. Um, I knew I, you know, had problems. I almost flunked out of college. I was a heavy smoker, drinker, marijuana, you know, a few other drugs here and there, but, um, but food was, was the anchor. I literally had a doctor tell me that I was giving myself liver damage from my drinking, that I was gonna have cirrhosis of the liver because of the heavy drinking. And so I said, okay, I'll stop drinking, which I did easily, but I couldn't stop eating. I could not stop eating, you know? So um, someone told me about OA and I went to my first OA meeting, I, I was 20 years old. And um, I walked into um, this building, it was a church. I wasn't religious, I come out of Judaism, but I wasn't religious, so it was probably my first time in a church. Um, I go in there and um, they read the steps and they talk about God. Um, the people sharing, they're talking about Jesus Christ. They're all women, I'm the only man. I'm 20, they're in their 50s. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a program for Christian middle-aged women. And that is not me, you know? And so I, I left, said, well, not, not my fellowship, you know? Um, and I went ahead and continued to eat for seven more years. And then um, November 30th, 1989, somebody invited me to go to an OA meeting. And luckily this one actually was not in a church. There were men there and people weren't talking about God. Um, they were talking about overeating and not overeating. And um, and I related and I identified. I still remember the first speaker at that meeting um, shared about how he would go into restaurants and look at people's tables where the food hadn't been bust yet. You know, people left and there's a half a sandwich or this and that left on their table. And he would pull things off and eat it before the bus boy came and took the food off. And um, I had, uh, you know, done that. I had done that. And I never heard another human being who had done that. And um, I knew there were other fat people in the world, obviously, but I didn't know how they got fat. I just knew the stuff I did to get fat. It was like, wow, somebody else does that. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing, right? To, you know, eat a half a sandwich off of somebody's plate at another table. It's like a pretty, you know, a gross thing to do. But I had done that and of course never told the soul. So I identified, you know, I just identified in with these issues and people told, I won't give you all the food logs, but all the hiding food and stealing food and lying about food, all that food crap. They did it. I did it. We had the same problem. And so I kept coming back. I just kept coming back. Um, and then people started to share really personal things, you know, like they um, had bad marriages and problems with their parents and their kids and problems with the law and alcoholism and all of this like really personal stuff, you know? And it modeled for me 
a safe space to share really personal things. You know, because, um, you know, I just casually told you my mother used to ask me to kill myself and was in a horrible psychiatric hospital. I guarantee you, I never told that to a soul till I came to OA. Who would you tell that to unless you were in therapy, which I wasn't, right? It was like I felt shame that all this happened. There was no way in the world I was going to tell those secrets to anyone. But when these people shared their secrets, it gave me the safety to share my secrets. I had a lot of secrets. I was sexually abused as a child. I was beaten up. I was involved with shit with the law. I mean, I had like this big hunk of secrets, you know? And there's a saying that we're as sick as our sickest secrets. And I had a lot of secrets. And so in these rooms, people were sharing this stuff and there was acceptance. It was like no one said, oh my God, you know, you fuck up, you did that, that happened to you. And particularly the shit that happens to you when you're a kid, like you kind of internalize it. Like I was sexually abused when I was really young. Like what did I do wrong? Why kids think like that, you know? And so um, it was incredibly powerful. And um, I like to say, you know, they use the term gateway drug. I like OA was my gateway to recovery. You know, because I came into OA, and OA was not the end-all and be-all for making my life better, as if there is such a thing, right? But it opened doors. Like when I shared that I was sexually abused as a child, people said, you know, I'm sorry that happened. And honestly, OA probably can't help you too much with, you know, being an incest survivor. But there's this thing called Survivors of Incest Anonymous. You might want to check it out. And I did. I went there for some years, you know? And when I talked about, you know, mother asking me to kill myself, they're like, there may not be a sponsor that quite knows what to, what to tell you to do with that. You might want to see a therapist. That's pretty serious stuff. And I did see a therapist, you know? And so it just became this gateway to, you know, work on um, a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma, a lot of abuse um, that needed a lot of work to, um, if I wanted to, you know, get some kind of recovery, get some kind of life. Um, so uh, I like to say OA was my gateway. So I started coming to OA, I identified in, um, people shared really personal stuff. They, there was acceptance, support, compassion, identification, gave me space to share my secrets, you know, and the secrets started to slowly melt away, but point me toward other directions. And then I heard this word called sponsor. People said, my sponsor, sponsor. And I learned there was a thing called a sponsor, which is someone that helps you work away, because like there's all these terms, tools and steps and traditions and literature, and like, you know, what does all this mean if you're just sitting there you know, on a chair listening to this stuff. So my first sponsor is what you guys might be these days call a big book sponsor. He was all about the AA big book, the first 164 pages. And he was all about just going through it line by line, working the steps the way Bill Wilson wrote them out in what, 1935 or something like that. And so we would study it a page at a time. And, you know, why did Bill use a semicolon there and not a comma? What was he thinking, you know? and we worked through it and I worked through the steps in a very AA, big booky kind of way, I guess. And then I also found this group of OA called HOW, maybe you've heard of it, H-O-W, Honesty, Open Mindedness and Willingness. It's a, a sect, sect, subset, whatever, in OA that's very focused on clean food and tools and structure. And so they said I needed to get a food plant from a nutritionist, I couldn't have sugar, couldn't have alcohol a way to measure my food, call it in every day, uh, read literature every day, write every day, call a sponsor to set time for 15 minutes. Just a, uh, it's like super tools, you know, just like a lot of structure. And so I did this how thing and then did, did this AA big book thing concurrently, which was a lot of time, but it was like what I needed. 
you know, it was just like what I needed and um, it led toward, you know, I mean, getting to Galway and, and getting and getting abstinent. Um, I, I, my, the relapse I had was, a few of them actually, it was mostly has to do with depression. I struggled with some pretty severe biological depression over my life and when you, uh, you can't get out of bed and barely do anything, it's hard to work a program, it just is. Um, but by the, by the grace of God, I've uh, gotten good support. Again, not from OA, but from where you get help for depression, you know, which is, in my case, a doctor. Um, so, um, so and I say that to say that the OA program works, but it doesn't, with certain things you need more than OA for. Um, so that all said, um, I'm now in OA just over 30 years. And when I ask myself, uh, what do I think works for me and might help others and what's most important is that i really believe food needs a lot of attention you know i am always uh my, because of my life i eat out a lot um the year before last i was in asia for 21 days which meant that i had a, i ate at 68 out of 63 times in 21 days in countries where i couldn't read the menu and barely knew what i was getting and food was very different and very strange and I came back the same weight or with like a pound of the same weight after eating out 62 times. And that's just because I had to put a lot of attention into looking at food, thinking about it, understanding what's in it, getting feedback. Um, every day I do food inventories and my disease always wants to nudge stuff a little bit here and there. And I always just have to look at it. I have a food sponsor and a step sponsor and always go, hey, you know, um, at that restaurant, that isn't the best choice. Next time, ask for the dressing on the side. Next time, tell them to do this and that. You know, like a, a lot of attention to the food because it's sneaky. It's always there. Uh, for me, it, the, the interest in food never goes away. You know, it's just it's just, it's just very well managed, really well managed. So a lot of attention to um, clean food and being honest with food. Um, a lot of it, a lot about connection. I kind of think fellowship should be a tool. Um, I started a men's meeting, actually, it would be 30 years um, next January that it's been going. It's the one, it's on Zoom now, Sundays at 8 a.m. If you guys, if I can put in an ad for it, the Sunday 8 a.m. Zoom meeting, which is on the internet, is a great meeting. And uh, I build connections and relationships with people in a way, men and, and women. But having a network of people to be able to honestly talk to and process, life is challenging. Uh, feelings come up that hurt. The first thing I want to do if I'm hurting is make that, you know, feelings an inner state. And the best way I know to make an inner state go away is put something in my mouth, whether it's alcohol or a pill or food, something that will numb it. Problem is, I can't use food, right? Much of the world, you know, and people always make these jokes. They can use the term comfort food, right? And, you know, people say, oh, we need some ice cream for this situation. Normies can do that. I can't use food as a drug that way. So I need to find other ways to deal with the stuff that's eating at me. And the best way I know is to talk to other human beings. Uh, I'm not religious, never have been, don't suspect ever will be. In fact, there's, there's OA meetings out there now for people that are not religious. They call them secular OA. If anyone's interested, email me. I can get you a list of them. But OA now has about 10 of them. But so to me the power is humanity it's the fellowship it's just finding other people that i feel safe with that i can just say you know i'm really hurting this situation happened 
like my um, I'm in a relationship that has challenges. Sometimes my business has challenges. Like life has challenges, you know, and you can't figure stuff out. And sometimes just another human being that will be present and let you talk about what's going on. Maybe they have some good wisdom. Maybe they don't. But at least they, you know, can be there for each other. Um, going to meetings is incredibly helpful. Um, I'm big on positive stuff. I do gratitude lists a couple times a day. I do different kinds of affirmations. I find meditation helpful. Um, I find reading OA literature helpful. I'm, I really like Lifeline. I'm bummed that it's going, maybe you know, they're canceling at the end of the year. But I have like 10 years of old Lifelines. I'm just going to keep reading through them. I just kind of need to keep hearing the stories, knowing that people with my problem had a solution. Um, I, I believe in the steps, and particularly in terms of like inventory, you know, just being aware of both the good and the bad. Um, the essence of what I think of inventory is being aware of patterns I have that don't serve me. You know, whether it's patterns around resentment or fear, catastrophic thinking, lust, greed, just seeing patterns I have that don't serve me and then looking to shift those patterns. You know, and they come back, but, you know, they get a little easier and a little better over time. But how I do it on time? Anyone tell me? But um, yes, you've got uh, five minutes left. Okay, thanks. So um, yeah. So um, looking at looking at patterns, um, I, I sort of feel like I think of the inventory as maybe having three pieces. Uh, one is looking at the fixed stuff from the past that I came into this program with that was haunting me. Like in my case you know, being sexually abused as a child or being physically beat up or different things like that, not having family. Um, but once the the past stuff is kind of dealt with, then there's two other chunks. One is um, just the ingrained patterns of living that don't serve me and kind of looking at them like probably my worst pattern is what I call catastrophic thinking. Like when things go a little bit bad, I just have them going like worse and worse. I mean, like this, this whole COVID pandemic we're in. I just thought, you know, the world's going to look like Mad Max, and we're going to just be hunting squirrels to stay alive. And I wonder what can, wonder what people taste like. So we may have to be cannibals if we want to eat. I mean, that's where my brain went, you know, by March fifth of this year. You know, I mean, I was checking out squirrel recipes, no, not really, but you know, it was like that's that's kind of how my thinking is. I have catastrophic thinking. So when I have to learn to catch that and like be in today and be in what's real, not what my brain can project. So. That's like an example of a pattern. And the third bucket after like past trauma, current patterns is, is life issues. You know, life like has issues. And you know, I've had like health stuff and medical stuff and relationship stuff, you know, um, business stuff. And um, you just need support to go through life. You know, like, um, like we can't do it alone. I mean, to me, the, the power of the fellowship is, is so powerful. Um, and so that fourth step, that inventory, whether you call it fourth step, whether you call it a daily 10 step, you know, um, it's to me after a while, the steps are less about this mechanical sequential process, more about just some concepts of living, of realizing that I have a food problem, that I need help, that there's ways of looking at life to make things better and to better connect. Um, another thing that really um, helps me a lot is um, I do the... A-E-I-O-U-Y thing. Maybe some of you guys have heard of it. It's, it's a little 10-step trick. Um, A for abstinence, E for exercise. I did I take care of myself. O, 
How was I to others? You, what can I uncover through the day? And why, why am I grateful? Somebody taught that to me a few years ago, and it's really helpful. I just do that um, every night. Another thing that really helps me a lot is taking the first three steps. Um, I've been, I don't think I've gone a day in years and years without taking the first three steps. Uh, I take step one by remembering my disease. I literally play videos in my head of my worst food episodes. Um, there was one where I literally ate a half gallon of ice cream, like an entire half gallon tub, and was starting on the second half gallon, and I called my sponsor, I was in tears, and she talked me into pouring hot water over the second half gallon in the sink so it would melt so I couldn't eat it. You know, while I was crying with like ice cream on my fingers and on my face. And I like remember that that person is in me because that motivates me. You know, there's a saying that the further I am from my last compulsive bite, the closer I am to my next one, you know, so I just really need to keep it green. And that's how I take step one. Um, step two is I think of the power of the fellowship. Some years ago, I went to an OA World Service, and there were 1,200 people joining hands doing the serenity prayer at the end. You know, an image of 1,200 people from you know 20 countries coming together to be free of this. Or sometimes I just think of the meetings, or even these little Hollywood squares. Right, I'm looking at um, 24 squares of people from all over the world, wherever you're all from, that were coming together to help each other, not overeat. So to me, that's like a power greater than myself. And for step three, I, I, um, I sort of say step three in my own words, but essentially it means to align with the greater good of the world, to really just try to align with the greater good of the world. And um, I take those three steps every day in the shower. Like as soon as the hot water goes on and hits me, it's my cue to do it. I've learned that like life's full. I sort of have to find like, I have to find little tricks to do things efficiently. What else are you going to do in the shower other than have your mind wander, I suppose. So I one take, minute. Oh, thanks. So that's how I take my first three steps. I do my 10th step at night, my A while I'm brushing my teeth, you know? I mean, I've just found little ways to exercise while doing gratitude lists and stuff. Um, but if I could try to sum up in a minute, what I think I've learned most is that you figure out what, um, what, what, what activities or what actions support your abstinence and make them habits. Just make them habits, just them over and over again. I feel like the key to abstinence is finding the actions that help me not overeat and doing them all the time. And if if it's not working, add something to it. Or if something's unhelpful, remove it. But but find that. And I, I kind of my two most magic words are like whatever works. You know, whatever works. Is. I've seen now people have so many formulas for abstinence. So many approaches, religious people, atheist people, this kind of person, that kind of person, but figure out your toolkit, keep doing it, um, and we all do it together. And if it's not working, ask somebody else what works for them.